0: The twin kind of issues of rising interest rates, which are taking a toll on the debt markets and the capital markets, and then you also have the problems with you know office market fundamentals in general, and it's just a one-two punch, you know, for a lot of owners. Every property and every loan is different. I think some you know landlords will have to take a long, hard look at their portfolios and see which ones are overlevered and which ones they need to save and which ones they might have to throw the keys back to the lenders.
1: Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct. I'm Isabella Farr. I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. And today we're kicking off our two-parter on office distress. So for the past few weeks, months even, we've taken you through the individual delinquencies, defaults, and foreclosures that have been roiling our markets.
2: But we're taking this opportunity to zoom in and then out. With this episode, we're focusing first on the conditions that drove a monstrous fallout in downtown LA and what that means for the future of that office market.
1: Then next week, we dig into how brokers seek to capitalize on this emerging distress and how lenders are dealing with delinquent borrowers much differently than during the 2007-2008 financial crisis.
2: But first, let's get into the news. And I think we need to start
1: off with some of the macroeconomic updates that we got last week. Absolutely. So we got some details from Fed Chair Jerome Powell on what's next for interest rates. And there looks to be a pretty significant course correction on the horizon.
0: Well, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell says interest rates could climb higher than experts had first predicted. Although inflation has been moderating in recent months, the process of getting inflation back down to 2 percent, has a long way to go and is likely to be bumpy.
2: Powell testified during two Senate committee hearings last week that strong economic growth, including an unemployment rate that hovered at a 53-year low at the time, meant that the Fed would need to raise interest rates higher than previously expected.
1: So we could be looking at a 50 basis point bump when the Fed meets next later this month, which is a bummer for investors and businesses who believe the Fed could actually stop raising rates sometime this year. For context, the pace of rate hikes has decelerated over the past three meetings. So November was the fourth time that the Fed had instituted one of their jumbo bumps, a 75 basis point hike. But in December, the increase was 50 basis points. And last month, it was only 25. So a 50 point increase in March, that would signal an acceleration.
2: And as we've touched on, Powell fears if the Fed isn't tough enough on inflation, it could expose the economy to stag. Which would mean high prices that stuck around as growth stagnated, and that's good for no one.
1: And as we saw on Friday, there's certainly reason for the Fed's aggressive bent. The jobs report beat expectations. The U.S. economy added 311 thousand jobs in February, above the 205 thousand that were anticipated. That's below the 500 some thousand we added in January, but it still signifies that the job market is going pretty strong.
2: Unemployment did tick up a little bit from 3.4% to 3.6%, but hourly wages, which the Fed watches closely
1: to gauge the impact on inflation, they rose. And it's more likely now that higher rate hikes will drive us into a recession. Here's the chief economist for research firm T.S. Lombard. That's Stephen Blitz. He's speaking to CNBC.
0: And at the end of the day, you know, he was asked a lot, but there is no exit from this until he does create a recession, till unemployment goes up, and that's when the uh, Fed rates will stop hu- being so, high.
2: So, what does this all mean for real estate?
1: Yeah, our our reporter Ryan Jones dove into the particulars there. Basically, residential brokerages feel demand will remain rocky as mortgage rates will likely spike given the bigger interest rate hike. And we know those higher rates hit first time home buyers hardest. That's right driving some to put off home purchases, and lower transaction volume, so fewer home sales, that hurts the whole industry. A Brown House Stevens broker told The Real Deal that it would impact brokers, and lenders, but also attorneys, contractors, movers, furniture companies, the list goes on.
2: And fewer buyers will also pressure the rental market.
1: For sure. On the commercial side, higher rates could drive even more distress among mortgage holders, especially those set to come due this year. So it sounds like bad news across the board. It's certainly not what the market
2: was hoping for. So coming back to the present, we're looking at a few instances of distress playing out in real time. Your story on 635
1: Madison Avenue got a lot of eyes this week. Right. So Ben Ashkenazi, real estate mogul, is being foreclosed upon for this older office property about a block from Central Park after he defaulted on a nine- million loan back in the summer of 2020. Given the timeframe, that default was COVID-related? Yeah, that's right. Um, And to stave off foreclosure, Ashkenazi pulled sort of an unconventional move, I guess you could say. He claimed COVID hardship through this statewide act intended to protect small businesses from evictions and foreclosure. Ashkenazi is not a small business owner, by no means. But his argument is the LLC that's tied to the building, Ironwood Realty, it doesn't actually own the property. It just holds the ground lease on it. So even though Ironwood is associated with 35 units, way above the 10 commercial unit max a landlord can own to qualify for the act, Ashkenazi argues that stipulation doesn't apply. Didn't that state act also expire, though? Yes, that's the other rub here. Governor Hokel let the act end in January 2022, but Ashkenazi is claiming the protections against foreclosure, the stay it offered him, is lasting. The attorney for the special servicer on the loan, he says otherwise. So putting distress aside for a moment, your story on the strip mall guy also got a bunch of play last week. Can you talk about who this guy is and how you nabbed the interview?
2: yeah. um, he goes by the name Real Estate Trent on Twitter and has more than one hundred and sixty thousand followers. I've wanted to do an interview actually with him since twenty twenty one. I thought it was really interesting that he's so focused on Strip malls, which is an asset class no one really talks about. Some people don't even really think about. About it as an asset class. We had that podcast about anonymous real estate Twitter accounts and I reached out to him. He politely turned me down, but I kept up with his tweets. And a couple of weeks ago, I was like, let me shoot my shot again. So we chatted over Zoom for like an hour. He's a 43-year-old guy who lives in New York City. He runs a fund, which is focused on strip mall investments. And obviously, he's also running this very popular account.
1: Way to be persistent. Okay. So He dishes out investment and apparently life advice on Twitter. So what does he like about strip malls as an asset class?
2: Oh, yeah, there's definitely lots of life advice. Just the other day he tweeted, being able to smell bullshit instantly may be the single greatest tool in business and in life. But back to strip malls, he really thinks people are sleeping on them as an investment. And the way that he thinks about them is fascinating. I think he likes it because it's a puzzle. He's very analytical about trying to figure out which tenants work best together, which isn't really something you have to think about with office or industrial, for example. So I asked him about his ideal tenant mix, and he said, there's a great argument for smoke shop, tattoo parlor, vape shop, and check cashing. But hair salon, nail salon, and coffee shop also do really well. And I thought it was interesting. He said, if you have a restaurant that's really busy for lunch, you should mix that with someone who's really busy for dinner. So it evens out. He also suggested investors should turn down Chick-fil-A as tenants. I won't reveal why, but it was a really fun interview.
1: Ooh, spicy. Okay. I love the Q&A format, too. Listeners should definitely check out that piece if they haven't yet. Okay, Isabella, do you want to lead us into your chat with the research director at Savills?
2: Yeah, so obviously we've seen quite a bit of pain come out of downtown LA over the last six weeks. We've talked a little bit about this before, but I wanted to get into one specific example of distress that we've seen. At the end of February, Brookfield disclosed it defaulted on $784 million in loans connected to two of their downtown L.A. office towers. One was the Gas Company Tower at 555 West 5th Street, and the other was 777 South Figueroa Street. What was interesting is both of these defaults were Brookfield's own decisions. On the Gas Company Tower, the firm declined an extension. On the other, it didn't obtain a rate cap, which provides some protection against rising rates. But as we have reported before, those caps have become very expensive. For a follow up story, I dug into the financials on both properties and the numbers really show just how much interest rates had started to cause Brookfield pain. For example, last February, Brookfield was paying about one point one five million dollars a month in interest on the senior and two mezzanine loans on the gas company tower. By December, which, as we all know, that's after the Fed raised interest rates seven times over the course of the year, those monthly interest payments jumped to a total of $2.7 million. So to meet those rising interest payments, you have to raise rental income, right? You have to get more tenants into the building. But at the end of September, less than three quarters of the building was leased, bringing in about $2.3 million a month in base rent. That was not enough to cover the debt. So, Michael, thank you for joining us. First, I wanted to get into the history of downtown L.A. just to give us some context about how we got to this point. So when did we see investments start to come into downtown L.A.?
0: Starting in the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, the city of L.A. passed, you know, well-known adaptive reuse ordinance finally allowing, you know, investors and developers to go in and buy and redevelop and convert older buildings in downtown LA, especially around the historic core and Broadway to lofts. And that was the first wave of investment into downtown LA after decades of disinvestment, you know, downtown LA by the end of the 20th century, it had been decades of, you know, companies moving out and moving to elsewhere, mostly on the West side or you know, just out of downtown entirely.
2: At the time, what sort of firms were in downtown LA?
0: Banks, law firms, government agencies, a lot of the same kind of companies that are still here in downtown dominated the office tenant base back then as well. What's different is that there's been a lot of industry consolidation in the, in the past 20 to 25 years in, you know, the banking system, law firms, insurance companies. That first wave really kicked off the investment in downtown LA. For a lot of investors, you could get older buildings cheap. This wasn't just limited to downtown LA. It was 15, 20 years ago. There really was, and to an extent there still is, you know, this idea of vibrant downtowns, buildings with character. There's a segment of the market in terms of residents and businesses that want to be in a more urban area. That adaptive ordinance really helped in that the city really helped you know, those who were at the forefront of the downtown LA renaissance to, to, to really kind of plant their flag and be the first movers. And after some of these initial projects became successful, there was a lot more, you know, there, a lot more other people were attracted to downtown. That's when you start seeing more art galleries, you start seeing more restaurants and coffee shops, uh, a lot of younger people walking their dogs, a lot of you started seeing some empty nesters even deciding to sell their house elsewhere in the city and moved downtown, mainly to take advantage of newer cultural institutions that had opened downtown, such as Disney Hall up on Bunker Hill, and the Museum of Contemporary Art, also on uh, Bunker Hill, much later the Broad Museum. In many ways, the, the downtown LA's resident base has increased dramatically over the past 20 years. And you could see the amount of you know high rise residential projects that have come online over the last you know several years just to see how much downtown LA's skyline has changed and you know the population the resident population has increased as well after the great financial crisis you know there was a little hiccup to that but then what happened was after that with interest rates dropping to almost zero you started seeing a lot of investment again and so this, it, what we saw was a second big wave of investment into downtown LA in the 2010s. Part of it was national development groups, but also we started seeing a lot of foreign money coming in from Canada. But then you also started seeing developers coming in from you know Korea, you know Singapore, you know mainland China. And I think that one of the biggest stories in downtown LA investment over the last several years has been the mainland Chinese investment. Who'd, took big swings at some of these big properties and big development projects like Metropolis, the, the stalled out, you know, Oceanwide Plaza right across the street from, um, you know, Crypto Center, which was formerly known as Staples Center. I mean, yeah, these, these projects ran out of money. There are questions about what's going to go on with that. After that second big wave of investment into downtown LA, then you had the pandemic and then the slow return to of the office in downtowns all over the country and downtown LA has definitely been affected by that but also some of the concerns about you know crime and homelessness and and some of that stuff that you know again LA downtown LA is not immune to now and you're seeing a lot of this these stories about okay the debts coming due on some of these office projects or apartment projects or portfolios downtown and you know i think the this is really the beginning of that wave also you're starting to see owners putting their buildings on the market for sale at a sharp discount to what they originally paid for it several years ago. And I think a lot of that is a function of, you know, rising interest rates. Also the fact that, you know, property values have really decreased, especially in the office sector where, you know, especially if you have any vacancy in your building and and the fact that, you know, for a lot of buyers, you know, the office sector isn't necessarily the most desired sector right now.
2: Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how how vacancy rates have remained stubbornly high over the past couple of years?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, compared to, you know, a lot of other central business districts prior to the pandemic, which saw record low, you know, office vacancy and availability levels, downtown LA's office vacancy and availability has has stayed stubbornly high. And a big part of the reason for that is one of the main drivers of office Space demand prior to the pandemic, especially in Los Angeles, was the growth in technology, media, and entertainment companies. And you know, LA in many ways is still an industry town, so there were certain sub markets around LA, like Santa Monica, Hollywood, Burbank, Culver City, that were very entertainment focused, or, or even overflow markets like Playa Vista where a lot of tech companies and entertainment companies really took a lot of space. You didn't really see a lot of that downtown. In many ways, downtown was has always been more of a traditional office space demand market. It, it hasn't been anywhere like, you know, the Silicon Beach submarkets. Also, another reason why availability and vacancy has stayed stubbornly high is because what we talked about before, a lot of those types of companies that are downtown have right sized, you know, over the years. You know, there's been mergers and consolidations in the financial industry. And so you've had murders of banks where, you know, a, a bank might or an insurance company might decide they don't need two or three offices just in downtown anymore. And so they've, they've allowed some of those leases to expire and they've consolidated, you know, without a backfill of new uh, other tenants downtown, you know, your your office vacancy and availability has stayed stubbornly high. The reason why you haven't seen a lot of office rents decrease or even crash in downtown LA in many ways is because the top end of the of the class A office market downtown is dominated by only a handful of landlords.
2: Got it. That's that's interesting. But you know, if they're not able to fill their space, they can't increase the net operating income on their properties, right? Like you have to be able to fill the space.
0: Yeah, that's always been one of the, the the criticisms of downtown L.A. office leasing that in many ways, it's always been a game of musical chairs. There's not too many very large users constantly looking from outside of the market trying to get into downtown L.A. Well, you have seen some downtown L.A. in migration of tenants over the last decade or so, mostly construction companies, architecture firms that want to get in on the development and construction boom. You know, and every once in a while there might be a law firm that comes in downtown uh, to downtown that from outside of the market, for the most part, it is a game of musical shares. You might have a big bank or a big law firm that's already in downtown that's looking to get more efficient in their space. So they're looking to right size anyway, and they're looking to get the best deal they can, you know. And so whether that means jumping into another building two blocks down the street or up on going from the financial district up to Bunker Hill or vice versa, yeah, that's usually what the tenant migration you see. What's d- different now, and this is something that we're tracking very closely in downtown LA, is we're seeing a lot more uh, interest in tenant migration out of downtown LA entirely, mostly looking at the west side.
2: Got it. So they're, they're giving up on downtown. They want to move.
0: Some are. Some, some, some companies are thinking about it. Some companies are definitely evaluating it. Some companies are looking at, keeping a smaller headcount in downtown and relocating on into the west side.
2: I wanted to talk about the current signs of distress that we're starting to see. We've seen a couple of foreclosures. We've seen Brookfield disclose that they've defaulted on two of their office loans. Why now? Why are we starting to see this now? We're
0: starting to see this now because the Fed started raising interest rates, you know almost a year ago. And so for a lot of owners that were caught out with looming loan maturities, in 2023, you know, some of them looked, had to look very hard at their portfolios or in buildings in their portfolios and figuring maybe maybe it's worth you know putting a property into default to get to to really work with the lender to work this out or restructure or you know whatnot. Every property and every loan is different, so it's hard to generalize. But I think in terms of why now all of this is happening because the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates. A lot of owners were caught off guard because you, you don't want to refi. It's very difficult to refi when the interest rates are going up and values are going down, and so you know unluckily a lot of owners have been caught out. You, you combine that with the fact that, especially in the office sector, you've had deteriorating fundamentals across the across the office sector. Other than top trophy buildings in most office markets, which seem to be doing fine, you know a lot of office buildings are still operating, you know, with weekly occupancies under 50%. So that affects, you know, all sorts of things. I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, companies that just didn't renew over the past few years, or they may have renewed, but they've kicked the can a few years out. And so you still have short-term lease role. We always talk about the flight to quality in, in corporate tenants across the country. And yeah, there might be that big law firm or that big tech company or that big You know bank that signed that big renewal or that big relocation to a better building but for every one of those there's a lot of smaller mid-sized or even large companies that decided you know what we just need less space you know and now you multiply those decisions by millions of companies and this is what you get with the so you get the twin kind of issues of rising interest rates which are taking a toll on the debt markets and the capital markets and then you also have the problems with you know office market fundamentals in general and it's just a one two punch you know for a lot of owners
2: i think the biggest question we're trying to answer is like what happens if we see more defaults and what do landlords do right do they slash rents at their buildings do they try to work out with lenders what what do they do in this scenario
0: I think again, every property and every loan is different. I think some you know, landlords will have to take a long, hard look at their portfolios and see which ones are overlevered and which ones they need to save and which ones they might have to throw the keys back to the lenders. I mean, there's a lot of this going on right now all over the country, where owners are looking at their portfolios thinking, okay, what can I salvage here? I mean, you, you you always write and read about you know, okay, obsolete office can be converted to something else like multifamily or hotels or life sciences. And so that's been very slow. A lot of it has to do with the fact that construction costs are still high. A lot of these projects still don't pencil because going in pricing is still too high around the country. And so this is why a lot of your investors are, and, and, and opportunistic investors are looking for, are waiting for that distress. But in terms of what owners can do right now in many ways it's a it's a building by building answer there's just no kind of generalized answer to okay we're going to look at all the buildings or portfolio and we're going to do x
2: yeah you mentioned earlier that you're seeing some owners put their buildings on for sale at a steep discount LA owners have a particular they're going to face a more significant hardship come April 1st when the city implements its Mansion tax. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it will affect sales going forward?
0: Oh yeah, I mean, for for the most part, there was there was a flurry of, you know, offerings put out to the market when that mansion tax was passed by voters back in November. For a lot of owners, whether they own multifamily or or office or whatnot, you know, they rush to get their projects on the market for for sale. The issue is, capital markets for the most part have been seized up because interest rates keep going up which means cap rates keep going up which means valuations have cooled which means that buyers don't want to pay what the sellers want which means that sellers are kind of stuck so yeah i mean it's it's kind of tough right now because that mansion tax comes into effect april 1st in the city of los angeles so you know yeah we're downtown la so i think a lot of you know potential sellers if they can even sell their properties before then are going to get caught out by that. We are seeing in real time right now what happens when you know, the Federal Reserve goes from a zero interest rate pop program to trying to increase interest rates back to what it was historically. The issue is we haven't seen it happen this fast before. Everyone in the capital markets wants to know when is this going to end. It's hard to value you know, commercial, commercial property right now, if the interest rate is going to be higher next month or the month after. Or the month after that and this is why you know the market is so jittery right now i mean it's crazy because it prior to you know all like the interest rates were going up and definitely prior to COVID, there was always blockbuster sales at downtown yeah. it seemed like every month there was like that hotel sold that apartment tower sold and it was record pricing and a lot of it was driven by historically low cap rates uh, historically low interest rates you know, buyers were flush with cash, especially international buyers looking to get into the U.S. to put to park their money. And and L.A., especially downtown L.A., you know, it's, you know, it's a, it's a 24-hour gateway city for a lot of institutional investors coming from overseas. It's going to be very interesting to see, if, you know, how aggressive some sellers are around the city of Los Angeles. But also, it's going to be very interesting to see what actually trades.
2: Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Or you can listen at TheRealDeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have an idea or guess you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at Podcasts at com. Next week, we're zooming out and looking at distress across the office sector across the country. Tune in then.